welcome to the Scotta Chronicast, the podcast which discusses all things relating to medieval Scotland. I'm your host, Dr. Kate Buchanan. This is episode 50, and I am excited to be joined by Dr. Bess Rhodes. In this episode, we're going to be talking about environmental history and some of the concerns around sustainability and regulations thereof in late medieval Scotland. Without further ado, on to the episode. Welcome to the Scotta Chronicast. Hello, welcome. Thank you so much for joining me today. I am really looking forward to chatting to you about your research. Um, but I just wondered if you wouldn't mind um, introducing yourself to the audience. Yes, of course. My name's Bess Rhodes. I'm a historian specialising on 16th century Scotland. I've probably got quite a few different sort of historical hats in a way. Um, I've specialised in looking at religious history. I've also looked quite a bit at landscape history and at buildings. And I've also done some work in digital heritage. So quite a range, um, but I'm based at the University of St. Andrews. Great. Um, well, what sort of drew you to studying Scottish history? Well, I was studying history at a Scottish university. But we weren't particularly at that point in my studies focusing on Scottish history. Um, I right. was doing a MLIT in medieval history at St. Andrews. Um, okay. And I became interested in the history of the St. Andrews area. Um, and it was really through the interest in that specific place and locality that I got drawn into the wider web of Scottish history. Aha. Uh -huh. Got sucked in. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, one of the things that got me so excited about it was um, I there was, well, still is, in St. Andrews, a very, very large number of medieval and early modern manuscripts um, to do mm -hmm. the history of that area, but also sort of some, some other parts of Scotland. And I was very lucky, a lot of them have been recently catalogued, but not that much research done with them. And I think that is one of the really exciting things about Scottish history. There are a huge number of underused sources um, and issues mm -hmm. that should be looked at and haven't been looked at in as much depth as would be desirable. So there's lots of possibilities. It's very exciting. Yeah. No, I think that's, yeah, you're absolutely right. There's so much exciting stuff going on with a bunch of sources that haven't actually seen the light of day in who knows how long. <laughs> I think it's also quite fun as well, because I think the more you start to look at the historical record, I think it challenges quite a lot of the popular perceptions that people sometimes have about Scotland's past. Um, mm -hmm. I think sort of... I was very attracted to when I was looking at St. Andrews to this sort of history of impressive relig religious buildings, this history of learning, this history of international connections. Um, and I think sort of when I've looked at some other things I've been really interested in, if we, if we take Scottish landscape and things, I think we've often got ideas perhaps formed by Hollywood and things of sort of wild <laughs> open spaces and mountains and things. <laughs> As so if you look at the historical record, and it's this sort of really detailed, intricate, managed landscape. And 
I just think yes. all the time there's this contrast between the sort of what you might expect of Scotland's past and then what you find when you look in more detail. Yes, I, uh, my husband and I often chuckle about the ideas of being like lost in in the the wilderness of Scotland when you're like like there's somebody three miles from you like <laughs> doesn't matter <laughs> there's there's somebody only three miles away from you. Like, <laughs> well, I th- I think that's I think that's such a thing actually. The sort of particularly the Highland areas were in the past much more settled um, than they are to do. Mm-hmm. Sort of the central belt, that probably wouldn't be so. It's it's jolly busy now too. Um, but <laughs> there's, there's whole areas of Scotland where we've lost settlements and where sort of we've got evidence in the past. It wasn't simply that there were people there. They were doing things like arable farming and things. I mean, mm-hmm. It's really amazing. There's this sort of 18th century descriptions of going up into the highlands and there's sort of, um, they're cutting hay and they're sort of even doing a bit of, oats and things like that quite a way up the mountains it's wonderful yeah no there's um i know um when we used to go out on field trips and stuff and being pointed out like um in places where you could see even still see like the the rig and furrow yeah bumps in the landscape (laughs) um and it's yeah it's amazing it's like wow that is I would not want to be working in that field because it is has quite a steep incline, but could have still been quite productive. It's, it's fascinating. It's yeah, no, it's amazing. The the yeah, the rig and furrow markings, which which actually need more research. Um, yeah, but no, that that there's huge numbers at quite quite high levels. Um, but I mean, if you look at other parts of the globe, um, you do have sort of farming at a surprising high level. Oh, yeah. Things like the Andes and things like that. So, I mean, much higher than we have in Scotland. We don't have anything that compares. Um, <laughs> sure. So, so, but I just think it's interesting, yeah, when we, when we look at things now. And we've got to remember that this is landscape that has changed quite profoundly. Yes, exactly. Um, yeah. And the population distribution and everything has yeah. has changed drastically. Um, Absolutely, it's it's difficult um, to do environmental history sometimes um, for the earlier eras for medieval Scotland, just because so much of the landscape has changed when they um, improved it. And I'm using kind of air quotes i know it's called the age yeah. of improvement that's like technically the term no i mean you're you're absolutely right that the 18th century and sort of even on this 19th century saw profound change which they saw through the lens of improvement and improvement is the term that they use and obviously that's yeah. quite value laden um <laughs> but no absolutely and that that was a context which stripped out some communities and changed land use. I mean, something I do think is quite interesting is that there's evidence of deliberate changes to landscape management much earlier uh, as well. Mm -hmm. I think what you see is a process of intensifying of how the changes are taking place and also um, some perhaps rather different relationship between the Scottish aristocracy and their estates. Um, But I do think you have to reckon that it wasn't an unchanging 
unimproved landscape in the 15th and 16th centuries, people were profoundly interested in doing things like draining marshes. They were interested Mm -hmm. in planting new woodland. Um, They were interested in founding sort of new model settlements. And we've actually got plans. I mean, there's a wonderful, wonderful drawing of a sort of um, envisaged model um, settlement um, at Adsel and things. And, and there's a lot of yeah. new founding of new settlements. If you actually look at places awarded um, sort of boroughs of barony and things, um, so sort of places given rights to be sort of new boroughs, there's a huge mm-hmm. number in the 15th and 16th centuries, some of which develop into um, significant things that are still with us today, and some of which sort of are there and go um, that that, that mm-hmm. aren't sort of. I, I hesitate to use the term fail, but certainly don't expand <laughs> into larger yeah. places. Um, <laughs> so yeah, so so. But you're absolutely right that the, the 18th and 19th century is a period of disruption, and it's a period of deliberately disrupting some of the earlier patterns. But I think it's really important that we also see the earlier landscape as a very yeah. managed landscape as well. Oh, yeah. The the the, the idea of it being this wilderness um, that you could <laughs> sort of get lost in or um, that uh, there were lots of things that were just untouched and unmanaged yeah. is is <laughs> absolutely not true. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I, I think they. I, I think they sort of as I would probably summarize what they aspired to in the sort of fifteenth and early sixteenth centuries as sort of a space that was orderly, that was managed, that was productive, but that was also sustainable. I think they wanted something that functioned in the long term, not just the short term. So it's quite an interesting. Yeah. I th- I think. I find it a very interesting comparison, some modern takes on environmentalism, some modern takes on what we should be doing with Scottish landscape, which uh, there's been a lot of conversation about rewilding, for example. And that is one option, and there might be arguments for that. But I think there's also a really, really interesting discussion to be had as to what does a sustainable, environmentally friendly carefully managed landscape look like as well and and, and that's part of the reason Mm -hmm. I suppose why I'm interested in what they were doing in the 15th and 16th centuries yeah um so what uh I know we've kind of (laughs) gone off on a little bit of a tangent here oh no it's mostly my fault um I should probably gear steer the conversation back to what your actual research was in in environmental history um, so w- what have you focused on specifically? So it's quite interesting. I'm going in a new direction, but with some sources that are fairly familiar to me. So okay. what I what I actually originally did my PhD on was on the impact of the Reformation of 1559 and 1560 on um ecclesiastical wealth in St Andrews Mm -hmm. and in the process I was looking at a lot of records to do with church estates and that sort of really sparked quite an interest in landscape and estates and things and I so sort of yeah obviously I sort of developed my my thesis into a book called Richardson Form Um, and I also Mm -hmm. was doing quite a lot of work on 
some community heritage projects and working with um, a digital heritage research group at the University of St. Andrews called Open Virtual Worlds, where I was doing work on reconstructions of historic sites and things like that. And Mm -hmm. when I was doing some of that work, I was conscious that I felt we weren't thinking as much as I would like about what the landscape was like um we were I mm-hmm. think there was a lot of interest in what the buildings were like which is really 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 important but I think there's also a really interesting question about what the wider setting of those buildings was um yes. and that was something my colleagues were interested in don't get me wrong it was something they're interested in it was just sort of how things worked out um a yeah. little bit with with where some of the evidence was, where some of the priorities for for what the purpose of some of the projects was, um, but that was that. I think that was getting me to think a lot about space and landscape, um, mm-hmm. and I've been very very lucky over the um, sort of for quite a bit of twenty twenty two. I was um, collaborating um, with some archaeologists looking at Perth Kinross, um, where they've been developing a new archaeological research framework. And a lot of the questions the archaeologists were asking were to do with landscape as well. So that mm-hmm. um, sort of pushed me to try and develop some questions that I'd been thinking about for a while with some of my sources about okay what was the Scottish landscape like in the particularly 15th and 16th centuries and yeah I think there's a bit of a tendency to sometimes go oh we haven't got the records for things and there are problems don't get me wrong there are problems Mm -hmm. but one thing I was very conscious of from having done a lot of work with um legal records with land holding records that sorts of things mm-hmm. i knew that there were sources there there's information you could use to go and go okay how were people treating the landscape how do they regard it how do they understand it what sort of protections do they put in place um mm-hmm. and that's there in sort of official government stuff to do with sort of parliamentary legislation to do with litigation and it's there in property yep. holding documents and I was like, okay, there's there's stuff here. You can you you've actually got material where you can start to answer some of these really interesting questions about what did Scotland look like 500 years ago? How did people mm-hmm. try and manage the landscape carefully? Yeah. Um, so yeah, there is <laughs> there is a lot there. Um, <clears throat> in my uh, experience it has often <laughs> been exactly where you're not wanting to, to, to study like it's it's good to have a, a a more broad sort of outlook when you're approaching the documents for yes. for this sort of information because it always seems to not be there for the if you're wanting to do specific site research I think um, but that's just my luck I no think. but do you know I think something <laughs> I think something that's so important about Scottish history is that like you see over and over again, people saying, oh, we don't have the evidence for this. And like, I totally agree. There are bits where it's really, really hard quite often to go to a, to a set of sort of documents for 16th century Scotland and go, I want to know the answer to this really specific question. And very often you'll find the answer isn't there or if it is there, it's mm-hmm. only there after like years of work on something. But what I would say is we have got thousands upon thousands of documents from Scotland in the 15th and 16th centuries. Mm -hmm. 
-hmm. Only a tiny proportion of those have been published. And I don't think we've even done with the published ones everything that we could do. That's very true, yeah. And I think it's really important that we go to those documents rather than saying, I want to find out this, saying, what can these documents show us? And, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the amazing things is they were very interested in land. And land yeah. often also has a relationship to sort of wider environmental questions as well. But they were really interested in it for very obvious reasons. One of the best documented aspects of, of that that period of Scottish history. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, so what are some of the things that you found in your research? Well, I think first and foremost, I'd say there is this concern for preserving and in their eyes, improving the landscape. So we have things Mm -hmm. like a lot of emphasis on tree planting. Now, I think this Mm -hmm. is partly because there has been environmental degradation earlier on in the the Middle Ages. You've seen actually in really the high Middle Ages, um, quite a lot of loss of tree cover. Um, mm-hmm. But as a result, in the 15th and 16th centuries, like Parliament in like sort of the 1450s is passing legislation saying, you must go out and plant trees. People who have sort of land of certain value should encourage their tenants to plant trees. You yourselves should plant trees. And that's something that we, we keep on seeing happening. Um, we see sort of repeated legislation encouraging tree planting in the... Um, Reigns of James IV to James V. Um, also, mm-hmm. emphasis on making hedges as well. And so yeah. that's it's like so. I think sort of a lot of people feel that that's sort of quite a a sort of a modern sort of um, 20th, 21st <laughs> century. Oh, we must all plant the trees, but they're worried about it, <laughs> and they're worried about sort of other good forestry management. So they're worried about. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a real concern. They don't like people cutting young trees and they don't like them mm-hmm. peeling bark from trees um and they sort of introduced I a mean, mary queen of scots's privy council has legislation restricting in the highlands where wood can be sold and saying that there can be no bark sold separate from the tree it can only be sort of on the tree to sort of prevent people going and peeling bark mm-hmm. from live trees and things because i mean which of course is terribly terribly destructive um to the tree yeah. <laughs> it could um, kill the tree yeah yeah <laughs> Absolutely, and, and particularly, I mean, particularly destructive was the fact that actually um, things like the bark of oak trees is actually particularly good for tanning, which is one of the reasons why mm-hmm. people do want to go and peel bark from trees. And um, obviously, <laughs> oak trees take a really, really long time to grow. And, and like yeah. specifically, like um, the leg- uh, the the Mary Queen of Scots Privy Council specifically saying that like sort of um, it consumes the tree and it brings no no sort of no commodity it brings no profit it's for for no good reason um, so it's quite it's quite interesting so like trees yeah. is a really fun area and there's so much stuff you can do with trees um, but there's loads of other interesting things there's a lot of concern about water water quality about fish fish mm-hmm. like preserving fish stocks is a massive thing There's really cool stuff to do with other animals. There's really interesting stuff to do with how you look at moorland and common land. Um, And there's a wealth of stuff that they're fascinated by. Yeah. Yeah. The tree stuff is always something that always interests me um, and the management and how they they use it. Um, But yeah, we haven't changed our tune in that regard. Um. It's just, it's just fascinating. I mean, under this legislation, there's like, there is, 
it's, I mean, we need more dendrochronological research in Scotland. And I have to say yeah. massive, massive credit to um, Coralie Mills, um, who is, uh, is associated with St. Andrews, who um, mm-hmm. has done absolutely brilliant, brilliant work on dendrochronology in Scotland. But it's, it is interesting that if you look, there does seem to be in sort of around the early 16th century, quite a bit of tree planting because we could see these trees being cut down later on and you could see that these were mm-hmm. trees that, that that come from that period that's when they began their life um which is interesting so it's not just people saying oh we should be planting trees they they right. actually are going out and doing it at least in some that's places good. some of the time yeah <laughs> yeah yes um so what sort of uh specific things did you sort of take more of a deep dive into with your research so I have to I have to warn you that like it's very much what I'm talking about now is very much the research I'm doing at the moment so it's on ongoing research at the moment I'm not really talking about stuff that's completed or ended in any way that's fine um well I mean I can talk about what are you doing then (laughs) so so I'm really (laughs) I'm really trying to do sort of two things. I'm trying to get a picture of like general attitudes to the Scottish landscape. Um, Mm -hmm. And I'm also particularly interested in what was happening in Fife and also the Tay Valley going up to Angus and Perthshire, um, Mm -hmm. which there's a lot of evidence for it's a really great area because you've got a lot of monastic houses you've got sort of cooper angus yeah. you've got the various five monastic houses you've got a lot of evidence associated with perth if you go further up the river tay you've got evidence to do with dunkeld and the cathedral there which by the way have an amazing set of um 16th century accounts so there's there's a lot yeah. of there's a lot of evidence for that area it's also a really cool area because it sits on the interface between um Gaelic speaking and Scots speaking Scotland, Highland and Lowland Scotland. So that is it's quite mm-hmm. a fun area. So that's an area that I am have been doing bits of work to do with on and off, and I'm sort of pulling mm-hmm. that together and hopefully to lead us to a better understanding of the landscape of that area. But what one of the things that I think is interesting is if you look at things like the estates of Cooper Angus, it's quite clear that there's deliberate change and in I, I mean, again, we're coming back to this word improvement, but I think yeah. what you might refer to as improvement going on on their estates in the 15th and early 16th centuries, which I find absolutely fascinating because I think we we talk quite a lot about improvement in the context of the sort of 18th century. And I, we also, to a certain extent, talk about what the monasteries did um, sort of when they're really sort of being established in the high Middle Ages. Yeah. And I think we've sometimes got this perception that by the tail end of the Middle Ages, like the monasteries are just kind of losing interest a bit and they're just fueing everything <laughs> and they don't really care. And they're just sort of alienating their property and it's all on the way down to the Reformation. And I think one of the fascinating <laughs> things I say is like, no, you've got early 16th century abbots of Cooper Angus who are draining marshes or at least encouraging their tenants to drain marshes. And you've yeah. got sort of them specifically saying to the tenants, no, we want you to go and plant these types of trees. We want to make sure you maintain your crops to these sorts of levels, which I think mm-hmm. is a really, really interesting lens on what on what's going on. Um, so there's that aspect. And then I've also been looking at just like, what do people generally think about it and sort of why might they care about the environment and, and that sort of thing? Yeah. 
What I always find sort of somewhat of a, a, a disconnect in how we tend to think about um, this time period mm-hmm. and, and the relationship to um, to the landscape, landscape management, is the idea that like medieval people weren't interested in profit or that they weren't as... <laughs> not to i guess to use more extreme words of like that they weren't greedy that they weren't wanting to like to expand their um you know the the produce of their their land um in order to to make more of a profit that sort of thing so i think um that's interesting that <laughs> you know you're finding like no they're they're wanting to improve they want to yeah. Or to improve the output um, of the landscape, they, you know, they are still interested in. I think what you said about medieval people and their attitudes to profit and sort of increasing produce is, I think, a really, really interesting question and its interaction with what we might regard as their attitudes to environmental sustainability are quite mm-hmm. complex. I mean, I yeah. absolutely think that people in the Middle Ages. Um, liked it when they got a good harvest. They liked mm-hmm. it when produce was plentiful. And you just have to look at the, the literature, the way they describe a sort of a flourishing landscape. It's a fertile landscape. It's one that's producing corn. It's one that's filled with birds and fish and fruit. It's, it's a productive mm-hmm. landscape. Um, I think they probably don't have exactly the same way of articulating it that or describing it that we would in a sort of capitalist state describe mm, it as yeah but I, th- I think the idea that plenty is a good thing but i think yes. there is something really interesting going on in that i think at the same time they they are very aware of the need for sustainability the need mm-hmm. that if we cut these trees down, will we have trees in the future? If we fish all the young fish, we won't have big adult fish in the future. And like specifically, the question mm-hmm. of young fish is one that comes up over and over again. And they deliberately, things like fish traps, there's legislation. Robert the Bruce passes legislation saying that you've got to have a certain size of a hole in your fish traps in order mm-hmm. to enable the young fish to go through. And there's repeated efforts to protect the young fish. Um, we see, again, repeated efforts to protect young birds, things like that. So they say, no, you can't go and destroy the nests of um, plovers and sort of game birds and, and things because that's going to have a knock-on effect. And they specifically sort yeah. of describe that they know about this. Mm-hmm. And I think they are very aware that if we wreck things today, we'll go hungry tomorrow. And I mm-hmm. think that was an equation for them that was very, not in all circumstances, but for a lot of them, a lot of the time, it was very obvious equation because they were getting a large proportion of their foodstuffs from their immediate local area. So that if you start to get shortages, if you start to wreck your local landscape, they see it in a way that Mm -hmm. I think it's less obvious for us if we're getting our food from a thousand miles away. If something terrible is happening a thousand miles away, well, we can just go and buy our food from a different place. And so I think for them, the relationship between an ultimate loss of resources and um, damaging the environment was was more evident than perhaps it is to some 21st century people. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and even um, not that it's it's not a similar approach across uh, medieval Europe, but I think um, Scotland ends up with a a different attitude, perhaps be, because it's its landscape is not as or it doesn't have it's it's definitely a productive landscape um obviously mm-hmm. they people wouldn't have been able to survive there um, if it weren't um <clears throat> but it's very productive in different it's productive in different ways than it would be um sort of further south um yeah and it's just again with it being a smaller country that immediacy of like well if this particular part of of Scotland ends up with uh, an issue of destroying their landscape or, or whatever, like that the ripple effects end up um, being a little bit stronger across the country than, than it would be in a larger country to a certain yeah. degree. I think, yeah, I think it's a really interesting question is, is there a distinctive Scottish experience in that sense? I mm-hmm. think there are definitely some aspects I mean, you definitely get concerns about, shall we say, legislation to do with hunting, um, which Mm -hmm. is a really interesting one, hunting legislation, actually, and is actually the lens through which quite a bit of analysis of sort of, in some ways, what we would now see as environmental history has sometimes been done in in the past. Um, Because hunting is really interesting, because on the one hand, it's like protecting an elite right to go out and hunt and kill things but it is also connected to that there's often quite concern about protecting the habitat for the things that you want to hunt Mm -hmm. and although elite people can hunt them other people can't hunt them and things and so hunting Mm -hmm. legislation is something that you see in lots of places and we also have it in scotland scotland starts out actually less strict than england on hunting um but it it sort of gathers more and more restrictions as the middle ages go on and on into the 16th (laughs) and 17th centuries um so there are things in which Scotland, um, some of the stuff to do with fish stocks, you can see comparison in other places. Um, mm-hmm. Ideas that it's not a good idea to just like put a net across a river mm. all the time and just catch everything that comes through that you ought to have sort of periods of when you're not fishing that there maybe mm-hmm. ought to be sort of gaps in the nets or gaps in the traps and things like that it's it's not unique to scotland that idea um it seems to me that that in the 15th and 16th centuries um perhaps scottish monarchs are taking a bit more of an interest than average um, in it. Mm. I also think it's interesting sometimes how Scotland chooses to frame the need for environmental preservation, the language in which they use. Um, And that, I think, ties in some distinctive Scottish traditions. Um, For example, when they're talking about destruction of fish stocks, repeatedly you get phrases about this leading to the destruction of the common wheel that this is like a destruction mm. of the common profit that if we if we lose all the salmon because we're fishing all ages of salmon and we're just stopping them when they're coming up the rivers and we're just killing all of them that mm-hmm. this is a communal loss and that idea of the common wheel you, you see reflected repeatedly when people are talking about various forms of environmental loss there's there's a really fascinating one um 
there's an incident um, at the start of the 1570s um, in end of the 1560s, start of the 1570s. And it's on the Flemings estates in Cumbernauld. Um, and they've been confiscated because the Flemings have been supporting Mary Queen of Scots rather than the mm-hmm. baby James VI. Um, and then whilst all this mess has been going on, um, Regent Lennox has um, gone and killed a whole load of deer on the Fleming estates um, at Cumbernauld. And he has mm-hmm. also gone and killed the wild white cattle there. Mm. Um, and the complaints to do with that, they're really interesting <laughs> because they, they they talk about the destruction, again, destruction of the common wheel. Um, and they also talk about them as being sort of something that was sort of unique in this Isle of Albion. Um, they aren't actually completely correct mm. in that. I mean, there's wild, wild white cast at Chillingham. There's ones um, on the Dukes of Hamilton's um, estates um, later on. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they, it's really interesting. They feel that these loss of these special wild white cattle, um, mm-hmm. it's a loss for all of us, is what they feel. Um, and I think that's mm. an interesting way of framing it. And I think that possibly relates to wider sort of discourse about community that's there in Scotland, that's there in things like the Declaration of Arborose, arguably, um, that's Mm -hmm. there very strongly in how things like urban communities um, write about things. Um, In that case, I have to say, if you're interested in sort of urban communities and their language and things, um, Claire Hawes is research is fascinating, but yes. yes. So, but so yeah. I think there is. So, how I I think environmental concerns are something that affect a lot of countries in Europe in the late middle ages, oh, yes. early modern period. But I think some yeah. of the ways the Scots talk about it is at times distinctively Scottish. Yeah. No. It's it's. I think there is one of the things that is also interesting is not necessarily how Scotland is unique in how they're approaching it, but also like where they are drawing like inspiration from where they are getting, you know, um, some of the knowledge and, and sort of keeping consistent with other things that are going on in agricultural practices across Europe as a whole. I think that is really interesting, actually, because I think they definitely do have foreign influences. I mean, I do think a lot of what happens is based on trial and error within Scotland and saying, ooh, mm-hmm. you know they did this when they drained the muir over at such and such um, and seeing what works and what doesn't. But absolutely, mm-hmm. there is external influences as well. Um, France is obviously sometimes an influence and there's some, there's mm-hmm. some evidence that... Mary of Guise, um, there's there's claims that Mary of Guise does quite a bit to actually change the management of the royal estates. I haven't really established how reliable those claims are, um, mm-hmm. but that, that it has been argued that. And of course, there's a lot of ties between Scotland and France. A lot of Scots will have, well, a lot of members of Scottish elites will have spent time in France. Um, yeah. I think there is, on occasions, um, influence from other parts of continental Europe. And we do have things like evidence of seeds and things being imported. Um, mm-hmm. we, we know that they, they um, ran, amongst other things, um, 
Cardinal David Beaton and St. Andrews um, import seeds, but um, other people do. Um, there's also, I think, influence from England, particularly in the 16th century, when you get in some ways more contact between um, mm-hmm. Scotland and England. Um, and I think you get a lot of interest in enclosing things in the 16th century in some bits of Scotland. Mm. And I wonder if that is related to some of the thoughts, that some of the practices that are going on in England at that point in time. But I would say I do think a lot of things are people looking at things in Scotland thinking we will improve and develop and work things um, and sort of taking things that have worked and taking expertise that's in one part of Scotland and sort of bringing it across to somewhere else. So you have things like the Tay Valley has this sort of really long fruit growing tradition that goes back at least into the high middle ages and the monastic orchards and I don't know, maybe even earlier than that, but it's certainly Mm -hmm. um, high and late middle ages, very, very strong fruit growing tradition in the Tay Valley. And we see things like when um, James IV and James V want to improve um, the quality of sort of royal orchards at places like Stirling and things, um, you see Mm -hmm. the movement, they they go to um, sort of the Castle Gary, the area around Perth, and essentially sort of have fruit trees brought from this good fruit tree growing area into Mm -hmm. central Scotland. Um, So I think you're seeing like, ooh, they've got a good thing in that part of Scotland. We'll see if it'll work in our part of Scotland. I think you see quite a lot of that. Yeah, cool. Um, There's something that we have been mentioning a lot of, um, and I was wondering if it wouldn't be helpful to describe in a little bit more detail for our listeners. What exactly um, is happening when we're talking about draining a moor? Okay, so it may or may not have um, sort of escaped your notice that um, quite a lot of Scotland's a bit sort of boggy ground. Um, It's a bit muddy. Um, And basically, there almost certainly was in the past a lot more of Scotland, which was various forms of marshland and wetland and things. (laughs) And people are interested, have been interested for a very long time indeed, in trying to turn some of those marshland, wetland sort of places into areas that are a little bit drier that maybe you can use more effectively for pasture, maybe even grow crops on if you manage to drain it well Mm -hmm. enough. And that's something that, so there, you, you have, we have written evidence that people were draining them probably by Mm -hmm. digging various forms of drainage channel. Um, Yeah. It's, There are, in fact, interestingly, by the late 16th century, pumps around for things like mines and things. I don't think they're Mm. really using it to like drain large areas of land, but they they do have access to that technology by the late 16th century for mines and things. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's essentially trying to get the water to run off somewhere else and get a bit more land to use um, in other ways, really. Um, and of course, it's something that's done on a massive scale um, down south in England, places like East Anglia and things like that. Um, 
it's something that's actually also done quite extensively in Scotland in the 18th century. But I think a lot of people see this as this new thing that they're doing in the 18th century. And right. actually, it's been going on probably on a smaller scale, but it's been going on for quite a long time. It's, yeah. it's, one, it's one of those things which is frustrating because some of the details of how it's done are not always described. It's like <laughs> that this area yeah. of land was drained. Um, it's yeah. sort of the level you're getting and when it was done. Um, and that often yeah. comes up when you've got property documents then describing how various people have rights to the land that's been reclaimed in that way. Um, there probably is physical evidence. It's a bit tricky because actually a lot of archaeologists haven't been terribly interested in recording field drains and things like that. They just go like, oh, yes. We came across a field drain, <laughs> and sort of there has, and they are sort of a lot of drainage features are not terribly easy to date. Um, yeah, but there has been quite poor recording, and it would be, it would be, I think it's an area where actually dialogue between historians and archaeologists would be really, really valuable, um, mm-hmm. and we can maybe get a better picture of what was going on, and not automatically assume that drainage is 18th century um, or later. Right. Yeah, it's it's always interesting. Um, for me to think like you know it, it it's quite a soggy place as it stands mm. <laughs> currently but like how how it was soggy in very different ways and other places were yeah. very um yeah were <laughs> I, even soggier than they yeah. are now i mean i think something you do have to bear in mind as well though sim- simply because land it- isn't drained doesn't mean that it doesn't serve purposes. I mean, you can still oh, sort yeah. of you can, you can go and cut rushes. You can still it's an excellent place for sort of wildfowl to live, and then that has potential for hunting and all sorts of things. Like, there's so many possibilities with undrained land as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you've got like, you can go and like you can be sort of if you've got traditional peat bog, you can go and sort of you can be cutting. Um, peat mm-hmm. and things although interestingly cutting peat is an area that is controversial even back then there are concerns there's def- that we, we have mm-hmm. evidence of landlords saying no you can't go and cut peat in those areas this is banned um because they feel it's destructive um they say yeah. it's sort of but also i mean you've got areas of marshland that you can use to graze animals in um and there's there's evidence mm-hmm. of pasture um, so, the, so there's areas which we specifically have references to peats being cut and pasture going on. Um, so, yeah, it's 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 a complex relationship, all of it. Um, but yeah, yeah, no, that's it's a very good point. That just because it's un, undrained doesn't mean it's not productive. It's, mm-hmm. it's something that is being used in in very specific ways. Um, and I'm sitting here thinking about like how um, people just were used to their feet being wet, I think a little bit more <laughs> than quite we are possi- today. Quite, very possibly. And I think you've got the experience of like, obviously there are places with the larger rivers where you've got bridges and things like that. Mm -hmm. And another thing I'd say in terms of why should we regard the 15th and 16th centuries as a period of landscape change, albeit I would argue in often a sustainable fashion, but landscape change, Mm -hmm. um, is like the people building bridges all over the place. Um, It's 
period when a lot of the sort of older Scottish stone bridges are constructed. Um, mm-hmm. But so you have got bridges, but there's an awful lot of burns and things that, frankly, the way you got across them was by walking across them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you paddled. Um, and yeah, I, I think, and, and I think that's the context to why um, people sometimes were bare legged. Um, mm-hmm. It makes sense not to get all your clothes wet if, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, uh, but yeah, yeah. it's quite, it's quite, I think that is, I heard an, 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 this is an idea that isn't my own idea at all, but I, I had a very, very interesting comment from someone who um, grew up in Ireland in the mid 20th century who commented how much of the summer they spent barefoot out of doors relative mm-hmm. to people today. And he said about the very different relationship with the landscape you had and how there is, as soon as you wear shoes, there's a loss of immediacy to the landscape, which is an interesting idea if we're thinking again about human relations with the landscape. Um, Yeah. That being said, a lot of medieval Scots did wear shoes. We've got so many archaeological shoe finds of shoes. It's ridiculous. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe that's even more reason why. Yeah, it's it's just interesting to think about, you know, how people even just got from place, you know, point A to B and how much more water travel was a lot more prevalent. Um mm. and 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 yeah. I mean things and fords and things uh, played a bigger role in and yeah. and perhaps that facilitating that. We totally need more research into fords and ferries. And ferries are one of those things that actually very often come up in the written record, but we really need a more systematic study of them. Um, And ironically, there's something where I feel that um, some of our recording systems from some of the sort of national heritage bodies, like, by the way, can I just say, Historic Environment Scotland are an absolutely amazing organisation, do so much Mm -hmm. good work. But um, the way traditionally, like, heritage sites have been recording things they very often haven't recorded ferries if there isn't really a sort of a visible marker there today um right. and that's quite a gap because i think that means that if you look at something like canmore which i if people are probably familiar with but is the amazing online sort of database of like mm-hmm. um sort of historic sites um that used to be run by the royal commission now now run by um historic environment scotland that's yes. That definitely underrepresents fairies. There's way more fairies in the written record than ever mm-hmm. appear in, in that, um, which is interesting. So I, I, I suppose what I'm sort of making here is a case for saying the written record is a really, really important part of how we understand mm-hmm. Scotland's historic landscape. And I, I think we, we sometimes historians haven't been interested enough in the landscape and probably archaeologists who are better at looking at landscapes I think often haven't been interested enough in the written records (laughs) right yeah there's been a (laughs) a bit of a disconnect there but but yeah it means there's lots of research to to come and and you're absolutely right that sort of water connections very much change um where's easy to get to and where's difficult to get to um I, i'm very very conscious of the way in which sort of um if, if you take both 
the Forth and the Tay, these are very much sort of roadways up into Scotland and sort of linking mm-hmm. things round both sides of Fife. And you absolutely shouldn't see them primarily as barriers. I, th- I think you see them as connecting right. points. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But, but water's fun though, because actually, I mean, their worries about water pollution is another thing that we're yeah. about. I mean, they're, it's, it's really interesting. Like they're, they're, I mean, Stirling um, has sort of legislation on where you can, the borough of Stirling has legislation on where you can um, wash clothes so you're not sort of fouling the burn. Oh, yeah. um, mm-hmm. You have so much stuff coming out of Aberdeen about not polluting the water and sort of not having trades, um, washing things that will foul the water. You have, mm. there's a lovely one, I think it's Selkirk. Um, one one of the boroughs, I think it might be Selkirk, has a brilliant bit about banning people shoveling muck into the water, um, muck into the mm. Easter pool, I believe it is. Um, as it, there's all these concerns about sort of maintaining the flow of water, maintaining water quality, and things. Mm-hmm. It's, I mean, it is they are in a sense talking about pollution, even though they're using slightly different language. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's. That's fascinating. There's, yeah, I just, I like how much you can sort of see into more of the like daily, everyday life aspect of it um, when you're really looking at, yeah, at what they, what they I, were working with, what they were concerned about. I it It is interesting because I think you obviously have this tension between what it was sometimes convenient for an individual to do. Well, why don't I trundle down to the nearest bit of water and just do my sort of dying activities there? And what is fair for the wider community then has a polluted water source. And you end up with inevitably the authorities having to step in and try and work out some sort of compromise or regulate and things, um, mm-hmm. which is interesting. I mean, so there clearly is at times a tension between the desires of individuals in the local community mm-hmm. and what the authorities and the community think is desirable or sustainable. Um, yeah. So, yeah. I so they just I was just thinking back to legislation and things like that. Something I think is very interesting in and maybe slightly different to how we sometimes perceive environmental legislation today. Um I think that broadly speaking, passing environmental legislation, so passing things to protect fish stocks, passing mm-hmm. things to make sure that sort of wild animals that people hunt are protected, um, passing legislation to preserve trees. Mm -hmm. All of this stuff seems to me to be the mark of a ruler who's trying to project themselves as assertive and effective. Um, Mm. It's really, really interesting that... Robert I is into it. Um, James I, when he comes back from England, his mm-hmm. first parliament, he passes, along with a whole load of other stuff to do with justice and things, he passes a ton of environmental legislation. 
yeah. James IV and James V, sort of um, not the most shy and retiring of our Scottish monarchs, also passed a lot of <laughs> environmental legislation. So I, d- I don't really like the language of strong rulers, but I think these are yeah. men who are trying to project themselves as influential, powerful, good kings. And as well as administering justice, as well as leading the country in war, one of the strings Mm -hmm. to their bow is environmental legislation, making sure that the landscape is properly managed and cared for. And I I think that's slightly different from from today, maybe, how we sometimes perceive environmental legislation. Well, I think that um, it's one of the the only types of legislation that really has a proper ripple-down effect to to the everyday person obviously not Mm. everyone will be working in that industry but it does like you pass um that sort of legislation and it you know gets passed on to the nobles who pass it down to their tenants and and so forth to the the everyday person and so therefore the, the king is getting a more like you know getting themselves in the the wider consciousness of the country um, yeah. not just in from the nobles, but down to the to the to the everyday man, as it were, um, as well. Yeah. Um, absolutely. And I mean, obviously, one of the things is you've got parliamentary legislation coming out. Um, but you've also got legislation coming out of the boroughs as well. So, like, mm-hmm. and they will have been the borough authorities are on the ground. So they know if Sterling passes legislation on where you wash your clothes and you go and wash your clothes in the wrong place, people are going to mm-hmm. see you. It, it's so yeah. it is, um, <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. This will have shaped people's behaviours and lives. Um, they aren't yeah. allowed to go and um, try and fish for the salmon in the mill stream. They, and, and we know that they, they actually at times put their money where their mouth was and like made Mm -hmm. a deliberate effort. So for example, there's quite a lot of legislation suggesting that various forms of fish traps like yares and creaves and things are a bad thing. So sort of this idea that you sort of have these um, sticking out bits into the water and then you sort of put nets across and you catch things and Mm -hmm. And that these are bad things. Um, there's a lot. There's a lot of suggestion that they are, and you mm-hmm. have in things like the Edinburgh Borough accounts, you have the expenses for the workmen to go and destroy um, the yes down in the, down in the River Forth, uh, Forth of Forth, um, Beggars Forth, uh-huh. um, and, and that's I, I think is very interesting. You can actually see the legislation being implemented. People are yeah. being paid to do those things. Interesting. Yeah, that's really cool. Um, is there anything that you wanted to add that we sort of didn't talk about? I, I, I said earlier that I had various different hats on. Um, mm-hmm. And one of the hats that I have um, lately been wearing, I've been collaborating with two archaeologists on a book on the Battle of Pinky, which does have within it um, a chunk, um, l- largely, I have to say, um, written by um, a my co-author Vicky Alexki um, and David Cordwell on the landscape around the Battle of Pinky. Um, but there's also a lot of wider context on sort of the battle and the, the causes of the battle um, and what it meant for, for Scotland and England. Um, so that's coming out um, hopefully in the summer, probably late summer with Oxbow okay. all being well. Um, so if people are interested um 
also very welcome to look at some of my former research, Riches and Reform, um, to do with the um, the disruption that the Reformation posed yeah. to, to church states. Yeah. Well, I am looking forward to more of your stuff coming out for sure. Well, I feel like we could um, talk about the environmental um issues and developments in scotland for hours but we should probably (laughs) not um but this has been such an amazing conversation thank you so much for joining me today oh it's an absolute delight thank you thank you so much for inviting me and thank you thank you for taking an interest in things The Scotta Chronicast is just one of many things relating to medieval history on Medievalist.net. If you like what you see and what you hear, consider being a patron on patreon.com slash medievalists. Thank you for joining us on the Scotta Chronicast. Please rate and review wherever you get your podcasts, and be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. You can also follow our account on Twitter at Scotta Chronicast. Our music is Ex to Lux Oratur by Gaeta. Thanks for listening.